Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, I'm joined today by a good friend and special guest, and we're going to talk about some awesome things in the world of knives and knife sharpening, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, first, I want to give a bit of rundown on what's been going on in my neck of the woods and give you a couple updates on things, and then uh, Colin's here as well, and he'll he'll pass some, some things as well so also kyle too feel free interact comment laugh joke whatever as we're going through these so uh we'll, we'll, do, we'll get through this stuff and then dig in so right um news uh since me last so this last weekend was father's day and, and my family and i went up into the mountains up by breckenridge and uh decided to do a little fishing and we weren't uh i got a tenkara rod recently so that's one of the like realist fly rods kind of from japan you guys have ever seen them pretty cool concept they like Pack down pretty tight. Uh, you can take like a little number of flies. You can take a little, like a little real line keeper. And uh, so we, we threw that in the bags. Threw, uh, I had some some of the gastronome backpacking food that I got up in uh, Rendezvous, and I've been saving it. And so we took that up, and we're like, all right. We found uh, so a lake we went to last year uh, right south of Breckenridge, right at like 10,000 feet. Uh, I found out that there's another like alpine lake um, up above the tree line at like 12.5 roughly or maybe 12. 
that uh, was supposed to hold some some good brook trout and stuff like that. So we decided that we were going to hike up there. And uh, so and by we, it was me, my wife, my two-year-old son, and my nine-year-old daughter. And so my two-year-old son went in, like, the backpack. And uh, so we set off up this, this trail, which is basically it's a good-sized road. It was also, like, a Jeep uh, off-highway vehicle road. So we passed some Jeeps coming back and forth. But um, pretty... I tell you, if I was to have to drive a Jeep up that, I would be a little intimidated because there was like some sketchy moments for some of those. <laughs> and uh, coming back down, there were a couple of Jeeps that were ahead of us that we could see from the top of the mountain. And then we passed like parts where I don't know if it was uh, brake fluid or transmission fluid or something, but somebody had like scraped a big piece of something oh. off and there was like fluid all over the rocks. And I was like, that's an expensive trip. Yep. But <laughs> it was, what did we do? It was three and a half miles up to the top we went from like i said about 10 5 to about 12 12 and a quarter or so um so it was it was a good elevation change the last quarter half mile like kicked my butt man i was i was beat it was like wet it was uh because all the snow was still melting up at that kind of level up on the high peak. So it was all like just running everywhere. And so the road, which was rock had turned into like a Creek. And so we're like pushing through this thing. Um, we get up there, get set up for lunch, eating lunch, having some gastronome, totally enjoying it. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to set up the fishing rod and throughout the other spinning rod we brought up. And like, we're sitting there and it starts sleeting, like sleeting. Right. It's uh, June 22nd. Uh, this was just like four days ago. Yeah. Like good uh, pencil eraser size sleet, like coming down all over us. Like, so we're like scrambling to pick up gear and like my two year old's just like losing it. Cause he's like, this is terrifying because of the sleet. And you know, we're, <laughs> we're trying to get out of there. We get everything packed up in like five minutes and like start our way back down and uh, finally got him like calmed down and stuff. And then uh, made the hike the rest of the way back down. And I think all in all, it was about uh five and a half hour, like round trip. Um, and then, yeah, we were beat, but we were beat okay. for the next day. Yeah. But <laughs> it was great. Like a father's day adventure. I was pretty stoked. So, um, it, that part was fun. Uh, didn't end up catching any fish, but now I think we'll go back again. There was still a lot of ice in the lake up there, uh, cause it was freezing. So, um, definitely think that had some, something to do with it, but we'll go visit again. Maybe not on a day where it may rain, <laughs> but, um, other than that too, like, uh, we're starting to work through our magazine, uh, for the summer edition. So we're shooting for mid, mid July, mid to end July. So, uh, firming up all our, our advertising deals. Uh, so if anybody out there in podcast world want to, wants to shake loose some advertising in the magazine, we still got some space and some time to throw that in there. And then, um, we're also working some great stories. So we've got like spear fishing stories. We've got some fly fishing stories. We've got, uh, foraging stuff, beekeeping. Um, I'm doing the, the DIY portion to talk about some lobster diving down in Florida, photo essay, some great recipes as always. And I'm, I'm like torn. I've got a I've been working on like a smoked wild pork leg, like a whole smoked like Texas style with the mop sauce. I'm going to put that in there, but then I'm also toying. So I did some dry aged trout, which I talked about, I think last episode, uh, a little in detail. Um, but I may, may put that piece in there. My thoughts on like dry aging trout, because I thought it was a, it was a neat experience. 
But um, other than that, um, Wild Fish Blend is coming out here very, very soon. We're waiting on the order to come in. It's in production, so super stoked about that. That should be out within the next week or so. Maybe out by the time you're hearing this episode. Check the website and see. And then, of course, we've got our wild pig hunting camp in December. That one's still in the books. Seats are filling up fast, so make sure you go visit that and get signed up. Um, Lots of ways you can pay for it outright. We also have a finance option, too, if it's a little hefty on the checkbook for you. So we just want to get you there get you eating wild pig and hunting wild pig so we don't care how you do it just come join us um and then i'll I'll pop over to colin what updates you got buddy hey everybody this is colin um (laughs) so the oregon tag that's his that's his tagline that's my signature colin (laughs) uh just because it makes justin snort his drink out every time um (laughs) So Oregon Tag Draw came out this past week, uh, actually just a couple of days ago. I ended up drawing the uh, controlled deer hunt for the, kind of the coastal deer, which is like guaranteed every year. And then uh, no luck on my elk tags, but they were like really low percentage, uh, according to like the online, the guy online who does like the percentage points for everybody in Oregon. Um, there was like less than one percent, so I didn't expect to get those. But that's good because I'm looking at archery elk this year, month long season. Starts in uh, actually exactly two months um, from this Saturday. So looking forward to that. I've been out doing a lot of scouting lately. I have five trail cams up in a uh, really hot area. I get I get probably 10 or 15 photos every day of elk passing by these trail cams. So I'm feeling good about it. I'm sure it's not a secret spot or anything, so there's probably going to be a little bit of pressure. But um, still plenty of elk to go around for all of us. I also got my Pennsylvania tags, so I got my antler antler tag there, which is statewide. Um, and then I'm about to send in my antler list application, which is again almost like guaranteed for PA residents, which I still am. And I also got an archery tag for that, so that's a special archery season. So in case I want to go back for like a weekend or something like that, I, I can do that with my bow. Uh, finally put my chickens outside. If you listen into the last podcast, I got some chickens <laughs> a little while back. Chickens are outside in the coop now. They're doing well. Um, wait, yeah, wait. Right. How many chickens do you have? How many chickens? I have, I have four. I have four Plymouth Bard Rocks. Yeah. They're like the nice. they're like black with kind of like the white stripes in them. Like tiny sure. white stripes. Yeah. Um, supposedly like the easiest ones to raise, so that's what I went with. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to them. They're doing well so far. Um, they've only been outside a day, but I have their heater out there too. So if they get cold or whatever, you know, Oregon weather changes all the time. So if they get cold, they can uh, they can certainly go underneath the heater, but they got a little bit more room because they were figuring out ways to escape in my garage. Uh, so I figured that was time <laughs> time to put them outside. Yeah. Um, I also got a. Uh, a warehouser company permit this year, which some might consider sacrilege for like the public lands access folks, but uh, ended up Dr. Ben and I both got the warehouser permit, and um, you know looking forward to it. It might be a little bit more restrictive uh, as far as the pressure that's going on in there, but um, looking forward to see what they they offer. We did see a couple bulls in the warehouser land last year when we were out during our elk hunt. Uh, just from across the highway or something. So uh, looking to see what that has to offer. Never never been on the warehouse, warehouser land. So we'll see what And wait, happens. so you have to explain like what warehouser land is. So warehouser is a logging company and I might I think this is correct that they own
own the most land. They're the biggest private landowner in the whole U.S. As in, they mo- own more private land than anybody else. I'm gonna um, fact check you right now. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to fact check me on that. But I'm, I think that's correct. Um, regardless, they are a massive logging company, uh, and they have a couple lands out here. But they're the only one that actually costs like it, it's they, you have to purchase a permit to go on there pretty much everybody else is free uh you just have to register and you get the permit and you print it out and put it in your dashboard and everything so right? uh no john malone is the is that guy? uh um he's a billionaire <laughs> oh, <that makes> sense. <laughs> uh he owns gosh is that 2.2 billion acres with a wait Two, no, two point two million acres. Okay, it's like holy yeah. smokes. Yeah, yeah, billions. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no, sorry. His net worth is is now nine point two billion. Okay, there, there's the billions. Yeah, <laughs> he owns land: Florida, New Mexico, Maryland, Maine, New Hampshire, Colorado, and Wyoming. Wow. All right. Well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe that's old old uh, info that I had. But regardless, they own a lot. Um, Maybe they're like the largest timberland owner or something like that. I know they're like the biggest in something. Anyway, they have different areas, and you have to pay for permits to get onto their land, um, which you know is good and bad. It kind of restricts it to people who can afford it. Uh, I'm not saying that it's like breaking the bank or anything, but um, it also, if you can afford it, then it limits the pressure on there. And typically, people will pull some pretty big bulls off of there just because there's less people hunting. Not as many people taking like the young bulls and everything. So yeah, looking forward to that. And that's uh that's really it for me. Now I'm curious, sorry. I got I went down like a huge rabbit hole yeah. trying to figure <laughs> out who's the largest timber owner. I'll, I'll look uh, it anyway. I'll, let's go over to let's go over to Kyle and introduce Kyle. Oh wait, hold on. First before we do that, before we do that, <laughs> sorry Kyle. I want to talk about and feel free to jump in on this one too. The largest freshwater fish was caught in Cambodia. Did you guys see that? I did. Yeah. Have so some... it's. Go ahead. Yeah. Six hundred and sixty-six pound, uh, freshwater stingray. So it's the largest by weight. Um, it's thirteen feet long. Um, what's well, freshwater? I don't know. Oh, so it beat out the previous freshwater record holder by weight, a 646-pound catfish found in Thailand in 2005, also on the Mekong River. Huh, hmm. wow. Southeast Asia is really uh, pumping out some big fish. It says that this is an indication that this stretch of the Mekong River is the longest remaining free-flowing section is still relatively healthy. Huh. I would have thought That's it crazy. was like uh, Piraracu or Arapaima in South America. Nope. Cambodian giant stingray. Hmm. Thing's huge. I don't know. How did they catch it? Oh, they caught it. I was curious about that too. New record holder. It doesn't say exactly how they caught it. Could you imagine trying to reel in? Oh, I'm not that. prepared for this. Yeah, 600 pound <laughs> fish. And like I've, I, you know, I've caught like I've caught smaller stingrays, 
while out fishing, and like they're still they have some good fight in them. So I couldn't imagine a thirteen foot one. Right. I mean, even your little yeah. mangrove snapper. Look at the picture of this fighter. thing. It is massive. Yeah. Oh, they tagged with a tracking device. That'd be cool. Ah, that's kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, what? You could see it. Like they they put a tracker on it and then they caught it, or they caught it and then. No, put no, 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 no. They caught it and then put a tracker on it. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, see where I was going to say, if, like, oh, they're, they're just tracking it, then it's right. like, ah. There it is. There it is. There, I got it. It's right here. It's right here. You're like, ah, oh, it's Monday. I'm going to check and see where the giant stingray is. Right. Go down and try to catch him. Let's go set a record, baby. I just like those. Uh, they did those shark. They do the shark trackers. You can go on online, and there's several like different shark yeah. trackers. And it's only like usually when they Those get close to the surface, on, yeah. and yeah, yeah. But they used to always in the Florida Keys when when Colin and I lived down there. The news articles like people would be like, "Great white spotted" or tr- "Great white tracking off the coast of Florida Keys." Like it would be like all the time. And then yeah. one day, who was it? Oh, uh, uh, it's his. He goes by the Key West Waterman. If you look him up on YouTube. Um, He's a commercial spear fisherman. We had him on the podcast a while back. Aaron's his first name. I can't think of his last name. Sorry, Aaron. Um, but he uh, he was out one day, actually right before we recorded that episode, and um, passed a great white. And he's got it like – he had it on video of like going like this, and he tried to turn around and it like couldn't find it again. But uh, then we look, and it was that same week somebody had posted – that the uh, there was a great white tracker going off off the Florida Keys, and it was up close to shore, and so we think he actually passed like where that great white shark was, and that he had passed the exact great white shark with wow. the tracker on. So he was like super upset about it because he's like, "No, man, I wanted to get out and like try to dive and like you know check it out uh, while while I was," and he's like, "I could never find it again." So <laughs> I mean, statistics will say that like. You're not going to get attacked by that shark, but the like 0.5 percent chance that you get attacked by that great white, then Mm-mm. that's probably going to be a bad nope. day. For those that know me, I'm not a shark fan, so oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a never, shark. I'm I've a never shark seen Justin fan from a distance. Fast. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen you swim faster than when those black tips came up to us when we were spearfishing. <laughs> Man, no, thank you. Um, all right, let's introduce Kyle. So, Kyle, you work with WorkSharp. Yep. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, how you got involved uh, with WorkSharp? Yeah. Yeah, happy to. Um, so, I born and raised in Southern Oregon. So, Colin and I are both Oregon guys here. Um, and I, they, they're out of here in the Valley. So, they started out like in Beecher, Illinois, and they moved out to Oregon. Um, and I've been working for them uh, for about six years now. Um and, you know, a little more about me on the, on the me end versus the workshop. We'll get to that. But uh, I grew up in the valley here, grew up um, hunting and fishing. Beautiful area down here. Lots of public land when it comes to that sort of thing. We got the Rogue River for fishing and um, great lands for hunting. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I grew up. And so workshop was a natural fit for me at a certain point. 
um, to go there because they're just a great outdoor brand. One of the few we have <laughs> in Oregon. It's kind of odd that they found their home in Ashland, Oregon. It's like this little hippie town, and there's this like manufacturer. <laughs> we manufacture like knife sharpeners out of there, man. So um, pretty cool. Um, and then yeah, I found my way working for WorkSharp, and I've been there for six years. I started out actually on the drill sharpening side. They started out making industrial drill bit sharpeners, um, which is the name Derex, what they originally were called. Um, and then they started Drill Doctor, which you guys might have heard of. They You'll find those in like Lowe's and Home Depot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved over into WorkSharp, which is uh, the biggest brand. Um, we don't have Derex anymore. Um, sadly, when that left, I sh- jumped ship and came over to WorkSharp and started working for them and got a job uh, doing something I've always wanted to do for WorkSharp, which is marketing. So I'm our our community marketing specialist, which basically means I run our social media, I run our YouTube, and I help out with uh, influencer stuff. Um, I kind of keep tabs on that. And then working with other brands like you guys and um, trying to find ways to collaborate, like doing things like the Quest. Um, that's yeah. one a great example. So, yeah, man. Sweet. No, it's cool. It's cool to learn a little bit more of your origin story. So you mentioned you hunt and fish. Uh, yeah. How how frequently do you get out? And it's okay if uh, the usual answer I get is not as much as I like, <laughs> which is that's, that's that ring ring ring. Yeah, that's about <laughs> right, man. Uh, work keeps me busy anymore, but I try to get out there. Like um, I always, well, I shouldn't say I always. I have my best friend is a huge salmon fisherman. Like he loves going out, so he'll drag me out at least once a year to like go. Especially right now, they're running. Um, and he's showing me pictures every day. Like I took my buddy out and showed him how to fish. And then I left and he went the next day and he caught, he showed me this picture of this big salmon. He's like, we got to get out there. So I'll probably be out in the next weekend or two here trying to catch salmon on this spot that he's, he's all crazy about right now. Um, and then yeah, hunt. I usually almost always get my deer tag and try and get out when I can. I'm going to try and get a little more serious about it this year. I'd love to put something in the, in the freezer. Um, this year it would be really nice to fill it back up because she's empty right now outside of a few leftovers here and there. So, <laughs> Oh, man, I feel you. Like, pig, pig camp saved me this summer. And then uh, other than that, because, like, I only took one antelope last year. I had a pretty rough year coming Excuse me, coming out to Colorado and kind of feeling my way around things other than, like, small game here and there. It's just, like, I need some big game. Big game yeah. love for my freezer for sure. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I need some more fish in my freezer. I need to diversify my protein source because um, elk tacos four nights in a row is delicious, but it gets a little old. <laughs> so, yeah. You hush your mouth, Colin. Yeah. Tacos never get old. How <laughs> yeah. dare you, sir? <laughs> um, nice. Well um that's that'll be awesome get out after some salmon what do you guys typically do with your salmon up there as far as eating wise uh man i typically will like you know just quarter it up and then just do the fillets and i usually throw them in the oven my wife loves my wife's typically the fish cooker in the family i like to throw it on the grill once in a while but she does a better job with the salmon than i do typically Uh, (laughs) i'm more of a red meat cook (laughs) she takes care of the fish nice (laughs) That's awesome. No, I love yeah. I love salmon. We uh we've talked about going up and trying to either up somewhere in the Pacific Northwest or up Alaska way and like trying to get into a big trip to bring home a bunch of salmon because that's like as far as freshwater fish we've been getting a lot more into trout you know because we've been catching a lot more trout but uh, 
uh, I think salmon's probably at the top of the list, but we get like super selective about it, just like with fisheries and farm raise and all that. I won't dive down to that rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> it's uh, we, sure. we like the wild salmon for sure. Man, it, and hooking into a salmon's like nothing else, man. Like the, the way they run and the way they fight, like it's just a different kind of beast when it comes to reeling it in. I don't know. You get the same thrill, I guess, with like a bass, but just just such a big fish and like. I remember burning the heck out of my thumb on the first one I ever hooked into. Actually, I didn't even hook into it. The guy that I'm talking about was like, here, you got to feel this and hands it to me. And like, I don't have the drag set right. And it starts running. And I'm just like, I'm just going to put my thumb on the, on the spool and try and stop this thing. <laughs> he was just like, oh, that's, that doesn't feel good. And he's like, oh, oh you got to tighten the drag. And oh, I don't know. Man. I think it's, you learn a lot of your lessons the hard way, I guess, when it comes to all outdoor sports. And that was one I learned the hard way. That's for sure. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> That is now you're like gotta set that drag for sure. Yep, exactly. No, I'm I'm excited to experience. It. I think we will have to put it on the books. We we kicked around the idea of trying to do uh you know like our wild pig camp of like trying to figure out a, a salmon camp. We're just I think probably lean more towards like a, a, a up north Alaska way or something like that. Just right given the the status of some of the fisheries. So yeah. It'd be fun though. Either way, I think people would eat it up. I would eat it up. I'd love to go and just hang out and like, hey, I can help you fillet fish, right? <laughs> Let's eat some salmon. Exactly. Um, but awesome. So uh, you told us a little bit about Work Sharp. I think which is great. Um, so you guys manufacture a lot of varieties of knife sharpeners, which is more than it, ever, man. That's crazy. We and if you got a way to you want to sharpen a knife, we can pretty much accommodate at this point. It seems like. <laughs> Yeah, because we've got uh, you've got the like the band powered. I guess yeah, I don't so know the, the proper classification for each one. Probably, probably call those like a power sharpener that uses like okay. a belt to sharpen with. Um, we've got diamond stone sharpeners if you want to freehand. We've got whetstones. You can do fixed angle system, which has been really popular, where it's like like a rod and clamp system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also got pull throughs if you just want something super simple and easy to use. Um, man, you name it. We've got a sharpener out there that can pretty much meet the need. It's just finding the sharpener that works for you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's an important thing too. Like what you mentioned, like finding one that works for you. So I like coming up in the kitchens, like we always use whetstones to like sharpen our chef knives with. And then there were some restaurants that went out with like, Oh, we'll send your knives out to get sharpened by a professional. And I'm like, look, like I'm a cook, like culinary professional here like part of my profession is using a knife every day like i should know how to sharpen my own knife and like be responsible so uh definitely like clued in on that pretty early on doing it but i like the variety and tools and as i've grown older i'm like let me try this method let me try this method and like Mm -hmm. i don't know i i I think every method has its time and place um Mm -hmm. you know like the field sharpeners i like those um and then I'll keep them like if I just want to do a quick rundown in the kitchen with a knife. But then if I've got time, like I'm either going to the whetstone or, or or using the the power sharpeners. So sure, yeah, I think there's a variety out there. But um, thinking about knives, and I put this little note in there just to kind of talk about a little bit about knives because we get we get a lot of questions about knives. I think from the culinary world, people are like, "What kind of knives should I own? Like, what do I need?" you know, for my kitchen, all that. And I'm like, I, I stick very simple. I'm like chef knife, boning knife, filet knife, bread knife, and a paring knife. And like, that's kind of, that's kind of the gambit. So with those, mm-hmm. like you could literally do just about anything, I think. Yeah. You guys have any, any additions 
you think you would throw in I wouldn't that add kit? much as far as like on the kitchen end of it. I think that mm-hmm. that pretty much cover you. Um, and you get to the you know outdoor side of it, you know, then you want something like a fixed blade. Is I usually you know if I'm on the hunting end of it, I'll carry a fixed blade with me and a folder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you know obviously you, you're going to want a fillet knife for fish or things like that. But um, as far as like your kitchen knives go, you've got it covered there, man. And then I would just the only thing I would add is like depending on what you want to cut. So at that point, you're looking at either like a western style that's like a wider angle depending on if you're working with some tougher things and like it goes to an eastern style knife like a shoon or something like that that's going to be more slicey that's and that's also going to have to do with what angle they're sharpened at those western style knives usually come in at like a 20 25 degree angle probably 20 and then a shoon's going to be steeper like at a 15 um even benchmade has gotten in the kitchen knife game and they call it the select edge and they're as steep as 14 degrees on their knives. So like wow. theirs are like super slicey when it comes to. So this is what I was going to sort of ask you, uh, why, why are the, the, such the variation in angles and like what, what do the different angles usually indicate? Sure. Yeah. So the steeper the angle, the slicier the knife's going to be. So if you're like typically like 15, 14 degrees is going to be a knife that's going to, uh, cut, it's going to feel super sharp in the hand. It'll probably be a thinner blade, so it'll have some flex to it. Mm-hmm. Um, sushi knives kind of fall in that category. Boning knives, things that you want to have some flex to them, and it's going to be it's going to feel really sharp in the hand as you're cutting through different mediums. Um, but then you're going to get into stuff that's a little bit tougher, and you're going to want a little more meat behind that that edge. And that's going to when you're going to want to go to like a Western life, like a I don't know the big names you'd think of are like. Henry Hinkles or Wusthof are typically mm-hmm. your wider Western style knives. And they're going to be sharpened at like a 20 degree angle. And they're just going to have more, you can just think of it as like, I don't know. And I think of it as like in broad terms, you can think of like your pocket knife is like a 25 degree. And then you want something like more of a wedge to like cut through harder materials. And that's going to be up towards like, you know, like a machete or something like that. It's going to be sharper, sharpened clear up to like 35 degrees. And so that's, you kind of just scale it down that way. And typically your, your range is, I mean, like super steep, very rare is going to be like 10 degrees, 35 degrees at the other end of the spectrum. And so like 10 degrees is going to be like super slicey, thin bladed, 35 degrees is going to be like a chopping knife that you're going to use on a machete or say like a camp knife or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they all have their uses and they're all different types of tools that you're going to use for different tasks. But when you get into the kitchen, it's usually 15, 20, and those are either like slicey or, you know working harder to cut through some meat or something like that is kind of how I would think of it. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I think especially like a lot of chef knives, you mentioned it except for like you go on the sushi end of like the Japanese style. Cause those are very, and even I think the, like the Santuku and some of those are even more, more slicey mm-hmm. than like you mentioned, uh, the Wustoffs or the Hinkles, um, your German manufacturers, yep. those guys like, a uh, 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 higher angle i guess yes you call it yeah they you could probably geometry. even like imagine it like if you had that shoon in one hand and your your woost off in the other and you look down and you can see the spine of the knife that shoon's going to be a lot thinner at the spine and mm-hmm. taper down quicker and that that woost off's usually going to be pretty thick up at the spine and just be like a wider wedge as it works down towards the bubble of that knife and that's just because they're just built different for different mm-hmm. paths the evolution of the knife yep <laughs> cool and then so th- sorry go ahead no go ahead uh i was saying and thinking through like sharpening and then so also in the kitchen like we carry as chefs you carry hones 
uh, homes yep. or steels, like to kind of run your knife over, you know, quicker. What's the difference in honing and sharpening? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, honing, you can think of like as you use your knife, the first thing that's going to show where is that edge will roll. So what I mean by that is you could literally think of like that knife, if you like stood it up and it was made like a triangle toward you. Mm-hmm. Before you see any any wear on the knife, the edge will actually roll over, like it'll bend. Think of it as like the, the, the knife edge is bending over and you can actually make that bend straight again. So that's what honing is. All that's doing is it's not removing material per se. If you use a ceramic rod, you're going to remove a slight amount of material, but mainly the goal there with a ceramic or um, a knife steel is that material is harder than your knife is. And Mm -hmm. so when you run it across there, it will make that your blade conform to the shape that you're running it across at. So it's nice to have a guide when you're honing. Usually you want to hold it at about a 20 degree angle. Um, some honing hones out there have angle guides on them. Some of them, it's just like muscle memory. Um, but typically, you know, you just hold at that consistent angle and run it across there. And what that'll do is it'll actually take wherever those rolls are and stand them back up into alignment. And that will keep you from having to sharpen as often. When you go to sharpen, you're actually removing material. So that's when you're actually going to take some material off the knife. Maybe there's some damage in there. Maybe the roll's so bad that you're not going to be able to stand it back up. Typically, it's like, you know, this thing's so dull, I need some work. That 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 roll will actually break off sometimes, and you've got a flat spot in your knife. One mm-hmm. way you can tell that is, like, to hold your knife, look down at the bevel of it, at the, at the cutting edge, and hold it and look straight down at it and have, like, a light behind it. And you can actually see reflection in that blade. And where those reflection is... That's where you've got rules or you've got like some flat spots that need repair. And so if your blade is in need of like actual repair, that's when you're going to need to go in and actually sharpen. And that's where we're talking about removing material, creating a new bevel and getting it back to like factory sharp. And that's where you're going to need something like a whetstone in the kitchen, a belt, powered sharpener that's going to chew some material off or a diamond abrasive that's going to take some material away to recreate that bevel. Nice. And I think, uh, go ahead. When you're when you're honing, um, like I've always seen it growing up, like my dad would take out the honing right before he's about to cut a piece of meat or something, and just do like a couple quick flicks on the honing blade. Mm-hmm. How much are you supposed to hone? I hone every time before I use a kitchen knife. Like I get it out and I always just, and it depends on how you store your knives. If you store your knives in a block and you know that they, you know, have been sitting there since the last time you used it, and it's you know been sitting there. Cool. You can grab your knife again, or if it's in a knife roll and you're the only one that uses those knives. But man, most of us have a knife that's like banging around in a drawer or you're, it's in the kitchen and you don't know if your wife used it last or what it was used for. And so like every time I grab it, I pull it out and I hone it. You're not going to hurt it by honing it. You're going to just make sure that that edge is in alignment and then use it. And if you find it, it's, you know, you guys are using it. You're like, ah, this is a little more work than I thought it was going to be, you're probably due for a sharpening. But, okay. man, you can't hurt your knife by honing it before using it every time. It only takes a second to do, so why not? So then that's yeah, my second I, question. When you're honing it, how many like how many times each side do you do it? Uh, man, it just depends. Like, I'd probably do, like, five or six passes. And, okay. you know, like, usually uh, one way that I like to check for sharp, and there's a lot of ways to do this, but, like, as long as you're comfortable with it, like, I touch that knife on my thumbnail. So I hold my thumb at, like, a 45 degree, and I'll take the knife and I'll touch it down on my thumbnail. And if it bites my thumbnail and just holds there, uh, okay, that's a good edge. If it slides down my nail, then I know, okay, this thing needs some work, and I'll hone it some more. 
And if I touch it again and it slides down my nail, I'm like, okay, it sounds like this thing needs to be sharpened. I need to go ahead and do some work on this because I've lost my edge. It's one way that I do it. Everybody out there, be careful if you're going to touch oh, your knife on your thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, <laughs> another medium that works well <laughs> is uh, use a Sharpie. Like that Sharpie, like the casing on a Sharpie, like you hold it at a 45 degree and touch your knife on it. And if it like sticks to the Sharpie, it's a similar material than your, your thumbnail would be. It's just... I've always got my hands nearby, so might as well Ooh, that's that. a good that's a good tip with a sharpie. I like that actually. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Um, keep us out of some legal trouble. People start cutting their thumbs yeah, off. Yeah. Use the sharpie, people. Don't, <laughs> don't cut your Void thumb your thumb. Use the sharpie. Um, At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Oh yeah, that's like call. I think you described it well, like kind of taking it out because that's like the iconic like chef. Like I'm about to cut some meat, like run it over super fast, and that's that muscle memory piece too. Um, I would do it, yeah, pretty much like you'd move from one job to the next. Is like oh, I'm cutting onions or I'm cutting you know meat or I'm doing this. Like I would move through and and definitely hone in between each one so you keep that. Um, I had one other thought too. Oh, we talked about like. From the very beginning, like why why are sharp knives important? Um, and it, this always sticks with me. So I uh, knew a restaurant owner and chef back in college. It didn't work for him, but we were friends. And um, this was right when I got into the restaurant industry. And we were talking about knives, and he was like giving me advice. And he's like, ninety five percent of the time, you will cut yourself more with a dull knife than you will with a sharp knife. And like that. You know, we're 20, no, not 20, 15 years later. Like, that still sticks in my mind. And I, 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 I asked him, I was like, what's what's the thought behind that? And he's like, when you have a dull knife, you have to apply more force and more pressure to get that knife to go through. So you lose control because you're focused not on guiding the knife, but on, like, pushing the knife down through whatever you're cutting. And he goes, yeah. with that, it starts to slide through different angles and slips, and you end up making mistakes because you're focused on the wrong thing. What yep. Do you guys- I couldn't agree more. That's, yeah. that's 100% accurate. Um the other thing too with that is like getting comfortable using your knife. I feel like mm-hmm. um, if you get used to using a sharp knife, because I've heard the story so many times, like I sharpened my knives and my wife went to use it and she just cut her thumb because it was she wasn't expecting it to be that sharp. And like <laughs> part of that is just getting to know how to use your knives properly when they are sharp. And once you realize like what the benefit of a sharp knife is and how much easier it is to cook and to prepare things to clean mm-hmm. an animal with a sharp knife. 
you would never want to tolerate a dull blade again because it Mm -mm. just becomes your muscle memory. It gets built up to use a sharp knife. Um, If you get muscle memory of using a dull blade and go and use a sharp knife, sure, you're going to, you may cut yourself. But the other thing with a sharp knife is you'll have a clean cut with a dull knife. Man, those are ugly cuts, man. They dig in They're They're just nasty cuts. Whereas you, you might poke yourself with a sharp knife, but you're not going to like do some real nasty damage unless you really are trying hard to do it the wrong way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Like, I got yelled at once. Uh, I was cutting, uh, was I cutting parsley? And for parsley, if you use a dull knife, your edges where you cut will be like dark green, and then the You're rest just of the leaf. It. Yeah, I was just mashing it, and like the sous chef came over and he's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, Is, "What what's wrong with your knife?" And that that led into like, "Hey, we need to show you how to sharpen your knife." Because like I had grown up and I'd seen my grandpa sharpen knives, and I had sharpened pocket knives and stuff, but like thinking through sharpening a chef knife and like becoming a professional at it. He was like, I'm going to show you how to sharpen a knife. And if you ever do that again, like you're going to eat all the parsley. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh. I was like yep. all right, lesson learned. So, um, let's see. We started, man, we've covered, we've talked a lot about, uh, this stuff here in the notes here. Yeah. One, one thing I think a good, that, that differentiates out of the kitchen to is, is when you're out in the field, like how do you prepare your hunting knives for going out? Good um, which is a little different than your kitchen knives. And one thing I, I've seen a big push in and I'm not opposed to it is those throwaway blades. Um, a lot of people are going to that Avalon. with their hunting packs and things like the Havilons, yeah. things like that. Um, and then, which is fine if, if that works for you. I just find that there's, silly sharp those knives are which is is crazy yeah, which razors. is great yeah um but i wouldn't want to get hit by one when i'm out in the field or something like that which i keep hearing these scary stories about people and they're right. thin and they and they break too like one scary story i heard was a guy was you know shoulder deep in an elk trying to cut up at the esophagus and the tip of the havilon broke off and so he was like pulls it out and he's like crap i gotta get that piece out of there and he's reaching up in there and he ends up like nicking his finger and now he's got this nasty cut on his finger and so that's that's that for me the throwaway blades like if you're into them great but i i prefer to have like my fixed blade that i know and use well and i think if you're any chef that's listening to this you know your knives that you like you know and use them well i kind of think of the same realm when it comes to hunting like i've got this fixed blade that i've used since i was a kid i know it well it feels good in my hand i know how to work hard with it and then i also have a folder that i bring for doing like fine work and things like that but the thing to remember and this is true for anything whether it's in the kitchen or but i I think it applies more to the field that people don't think about is like head out with a sharp knife at a known angle we talk about that so like you sharpen your your knife at 20 degrees when you leave you'll know when you're out there what angle you need to hold when you need to touch your knife up so just like you're talking about when it comes to honing your knife when you're in the kitchen how often Mm -hmm. do you need to do that you're talking about doing it between between you know slicing different vegetables you're working on an animal that knife can get dull you can hit a bone or something like that oh, roll that easily, pretty yeah. good. then you're fi- fighting your knife having a pack sharpener with you like our guided field sharpener whatever you want you can have whatever field sharpener you want it doesn't have to be a workshop one but at least have one in your pack to where as you're working on that animal you can go back and sharpen that knife on that field sharpener and get your edge back. It may just need a hone, just like we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. There's a honing option for that. Or if you do happen to, you know, nick the blade, have a diamond abrasive to go back and sharpen it up. But what you'll find and what I hear often from hunters is, man, I'm out in the field and I'm fighting with my knife. And the problem you're running into is you didn't know the angle 
your knife was sharp enough before you got out in the field. So then you're trying to hone it at a different angle and you're fighting yourself basically by not knowing what your oh, yeah. what, what angle your knife was sharpened at when you left. It's a lot easier to just go ahead and hone the same angle and get yourself back to work than it is sitting there fighting. And there's nothing more frustrating than having an animal down. The sun's going down, your knife's dull, and you're like, I just want to get this done. And that's yeah. when you start using a dull knife and making mistakes and you could hurt yourself. Start trying to rush and then, keep that, yeah, exactly, keep that knife sharp and yeah. get back to work. So, wow, that, that led me into a thought. How does a person figure out what angle their knife is, should be sharpened at, or can you change the sharpened angle? Yes. And yes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you can make your knives, whatever angle you want. Um, depending on, you know, you just need to remove the material and get it sharpened at the angle you want it to be. Most of your, like I said, on the front end, most of your kitchen knives are 15 degrees on the Eastern end. Westerns are 20. When you get into outdoor knives they are going to be 20 or 25 mm-hmm. degrees. Um, and then like your wider, like camp knives will be out to like 30, 35 degrees, depending on how much of a chopper they are. But just focusing on like hunting knives, typically you're going to be 20 and 25 degrees. And the way that I have found that's really easy to figure out what angle your knife is, is take that same Sharpie we talked about earlier. And you're just going to take that Sharpie and color along the bevel of your knife. So you're just going to color the whole bevel black. And then you're going to go to a sharpener, say like a... I don't know, a diamond stone or a whetstone, and you're going to hold it at an angle. So like our sharpeners are nice because they'll, they'll hold you at like 20 degrees and you just hold that angle across as you, as you draw across the abrasive. And then as you draw across the abrasive, it's going to erase where that black mark is. And you can tell if you're coming in uh, too shallow or too deep and you can adjust to know, oh shoot, this is hitting towards the heel uh, if it's, you know, maybe it needs to be more towards, maybe it's more of a 25 degree angle or a 20 degree angle. You can adjust and then dial it in from there to know exactly what angle your knife is sharpened at. Cause honestly, a lot of the manufacturers don't tell you, they don't, they don't exactly advertise it. And if, if you pay enough attention to your knives, the manufacturers that are on the lower end of the spectrum, when it comes to price, you, if you look at a, their bevel right out of the box, they're not always like, equal bevels like there's a lot of really bad grinds ah. that come right out of the factory because honestly they're, they're grinding those knives by hand in the factory too which is just another element of human error mm-hmm. um the first thing i do when i buy a knife especially if it's like sub 100 dollars knife i sharpen it because i wanted to get the bevel reveal even and i want to make sure you know it's sharpened to the angle that i want it to be sharpened at so oh that's a good tip too i like that yeah. one too thinking about sharpening knives like even sort of putting it in <laughs> putting it in your own hands. Uh, yep. but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I think it's, yeah, it's a good way to know to the, the angle and stuff like that and work through it, make sure everything's even and matched. Yep. So, and then I know, and then the next time I go to sharpen it, I just, it's ready to go. It's a, it's, this knife I sharpened to 20 degrees. This knife I keep at 25, just depending on what job it's doing. Man, this is a great, this is a great combo. I know we're like running out of time cause you got to run here in a few minutes, but you're good. Um, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, this is awesome. Uh, I love the tech, the technicality behind it, all of this. Um, one yeah, thing I wanted to talk about. Well, it's one of those things that, like, you know, as as hunters and anglers, we talk so much about um, like calibers or like broadheads or something. Which also we could talk about broadheads too, but um, like calibers and like oh the gear you need, binoculars and stuff like that. But then it's like, all right, well now the animal's down. Like now I need the, my other tool, which is like you know a sharp knife. So 
Yeah, I think it's something that uh, is often overlooked, but definitely. Man, it's a it's a rabbit hole once you get into it. Like, not <laughs> only angle, you start talking blade steels. Oh man, you want to see fights in the comments about like ask people what the best blade steel for a knife is, and oh, you'll just see people Damascus versus uh, whatever, oh, like man, cold like pressed or whatever. S thirty V is the best thing you've ever seen. <laughs> I wouldn't even touch, you know, any anything less than S thirty V, and you know, there's some truth to that. Some of those knives, those knives, nicer knife steels hold up to a lot longer they, their edges hold they uh they re- react better to a hone you know it, it, it's something that you don't have to sharpen as often so it's it's just a it's a wild rabbit trail you can go down and it's oh, fun sure. i like nerding out on it too but, um it, the world of knives is, is pretty wild man <laughs> how does uh how does work sharp measure up with broadheads do you guys have like specific broadhead techniques or guides or anything we don't necessarily. I've seen a lot of people um, for like a traditional, just two bladed broadhead throwing it in our precision adjust. Okay. Um, I've got a video of somebody with a three headed broadhead just laying it down on one of our diamond abrasives and running it back and forth, and then honing it with a leather compound. Um, so there's options out there. My answer to that is similar to like some of the more elaborate knives out there. If you can get the tool to the abrasive you can sharpen it. It just might take, might take some creativity to do it. Yeah. Um, but we don't have like a dedicated like broadhead sharpener out there, but I don't know that like, I mean, we could advertise it that way, but mainly it just comes down to, cause there's so many varieties out there. Oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. being able like to be able to say like, this one does broadheads. We'd just be getting killed in the comments from people like, well, it doesn't do my broadhead. And it's like, <laughs> there's like a million of them out there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so mainly I just don't tell people like, if you can figure out how to get your, no matter what it is, a knife, tool, hatchet, whatever it is, to the abrasive, you can sharpen it. It's just, okay. you know, finding the tool to do it. Right on. And I think, so. too, like, you start thinking about broadheads and and time spent trying to sharpen them versus, like, buying a new pack of, you know, right. $25, $30, $50 broadheads. Like, where, where does that start to go? Like, it's different. I think different with a knife. Like, it's more easy to lose, damage, replace a broadhead than it is, like, a good hunting knife. Right. Yep. So, 100%. Uh, I think I think about it that way. And, like, man, two broadheads frighten me. It's like those removable blades. It's like, those things know, are right? sharp. Kind of slip. And- <laughs> yeah. I just got a couple packs trying out my my bow and uh yeah i'm just being like super careful like using the little I'll key bet. and everything every time <laughs> yeah i want to slice yeah. my fingers open trying to take one off right what was it last <laughs> year so ben and i were out uh elk hunting here in colorado last year and we got back in like our last half mile stretch and uh and like he hears we're down by the river probably half mile from the truck and hear like this rustling on the hillside and i'm like yes it's a bear like i got a bear tag in my pocket like totally not prepared for there an elk to be this close to the parking lot but it he looks up and he's like it's an elk i was like it's a bear he's like no it's an elk and so he like knocks an arrow and like he said all i could see was the bushes and then you could see the eyes of the elk and then just like this massive set of antlers and he's like biggest antlers i've ever seen even in like the elk preserves in oregon like wherever he's like this thing was massive and he's like just as soon as i like moved a little bit to like he said i had no shot because the bushes like he was standing like directly forward to me at like 30 yards so i couldn't shoot through the brush to hit him with my bow but he's it turned 
up the hill and Ben's like, I'm going up after it. And like, he's got his arrow notch, like running up the hill and like comes back down. He's got like a big cut on his arm from like his, his knocked arrow. Like, I'm like, dude, that's super dangerous, man. Like that sketches me out too. Like, right. Yeah. If you had a like trip going up that, the hill. Goes right yeah. The Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. No. So, um, real quick before you go, yeah. uh, l- Let's talk about the quest real quick. We mentioned it earlier, but uh, it's it's an awesome event you guys got going on and that yeah. we kind of partnered with a little bit on it. Definitely. Yeah, I'd love to share a little bit more about it. So basically, we have filled up 35 Yeti Go boxes, which are just these rad uh, boxes in and of themselves. I, I want one. I haven't been able to snag <laughs> one out of the pile yet myself. Um, but we filled it up with sharpeners. Um, we put some... Knives in there, you can get the exclusive Benchmade bug out. We've, we threw one of those in every one of our boxes. Um, other gear from Costa, Camp Chef. Um, there's a Phoenix headlamp in there. All kinds of awesome gear. About $1,000 worth of stuff. Um, and then basically we've shipped those out to partners like yourselves all over the country to take them out and hide them in the public land wilderness. Um, and then basically it's a scavenger hunt once those boxes are, are hidden. And we help um, share those clues um, on our Instagram and on our email. So uh, if you're listening and you follow Harvesting Nature, you'll want to follow us as well because they've got a box coming up. Um, I won't say mm-hmm. where yet, but they've got a box hidden somewhere in public land across the country. And uh, we're going to be sharing clues on both channels and you'll have a chance to just go out and find it. And that's the best part about it is it's open to anybody uh, where I got the idea from is was there was an influencer, like I mentioned earlier, I work with our influencers and there was an influencer who one of the big knife brands sent out on a scavenger hunt to find, especially when 2020 hit, like nobody could go to trade shows or anything like that. So the way they released their new knives was to send this guy out on this epic scavenger hunt. And it was cool. Like he should be videographed, like documented it all on video and it was a rad video and he found the box and all these sweet knives were in it. And I thought, man, that's cool, but I want to be able to do that. Like I want that for everybody else. This is like the every man's version of that. Like you can go out and find this Epic box just by following these clues um, and enjoy some sweet loot on WorkSharp and a few other brands. And uh, we love partnering with you guys and thankful to you guys for helping us by stashing those boxes. Yeah, absolutely. We were super stoked to do it. Uh, I won't tell who on the crew did it because that'll reveal where it's yeah, at. Yeah, that'll if, probably help out. Yeah, but if somebody pays enough attention, they know like where we are at physically. Right. So I, I yeah. won't share it, uh, who who did it, but it, it'll be fun. So stay tuned. And this actually timing of this should probably be about perfect for, for perfect. our box. So. Right on. Um, but uh, no. Kyle, you, you have any last thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, no, us man. Or I, guests or anything? I just want to say thanks for having me on, man. I'd love to come back. I know we kind of got cut off here on short on time. So if you guys ever want to have me back, I'd be happy to come talk knives again or or whatever else. I love hanging out with you guys. Oh, you dude, guys for sure. Backcountry hunters and anglers uh, up in Montana there and hit it off with you and Colin. And, man, I, I just enjoy t- talking with you guys. So I'm happy to come back if you guys ever want to have me. Excited to work with you guys on things like the quest, and you'll see more of me, I'm sure, at some point along the way. That's for sure. So, oh we'll, yeah, we'll figure out. Yeah, we hung again. out. You're not, you're not getting away that easy. That's We're right. Hang That's out right. again. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, Colin, you got a last thought for us? Yeah, I have two. I don't think we touched on it really how we got connected. Um, now that you mentioned that, Kyle. So our tents are right next to each other at Rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A really, really good stroke of luck there. Um, 
yeah, it was really, really good to, to hang out with you during that week and uh, connect with you. But um, I looked up the Warehouser thing. So Warehouser is, <laughs> is the largest timberland owner in the U.S. and Canada with 10.6 million acres, Jeez. which is more than the next four combined. So wow. they own a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, is that a lot. was off of uh, statista.com. Basically, if you search top timberland owners in the U.S. and Canada, and that's of as of 2021. Nice. So, maybe uh, somebody else. Maybe somebody else made a run for it. Yeah. If somebody <laughs> else bought seven million, seven point five million acres in the past year, then <laughs> they'll have beat out Warehouser. But <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. That's Sweet, them. Man. Kyle, awesome to have you on. We're definitely gonna have to connect again. Maybe we could do uh maybe like a live sharpening demo or something. Have to oh, back that. up in person. That'd be fun. Um, For sure. So yeah, we'll we'll think through some stuff and excited we're we're involved in the quest and awesome things because we like knives and we like sharp knives and because sharp <laughs> knives help us make good food, which is what we really like. So right. <laughs> um no, I, I think it's very cool that we get into some of the whys and we, we dispelled some myths and talked some techniques and tactics, which I think uh, a lot of folks can take away and, and put in their own toolbox to to use in the future. So, But no, sure. definitely uh, take Kyle's advice. Make sure you're following WorkSharp too on social media and, and check out their website. Sign up so you get those email alerts for the quest. And then uh, also make sure you're following us too at Harvest in mm-hmm. Nature, not just for the quest, but for all the other awesome things we have going on as well. And then whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five-star button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong or, you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.